0: The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, number 458, episode 458, for Sunday, July 14th, 2013. <music> folks, and welcome. The Mac Observers, Mac Geek of the show, where you send in questions, tips, and cool stuff found. We answer your questions, we discuss all kinds of things, we share tips, we share cool stuff found, and together we all like to learn several new things each and every week that we come here together. And here on a sunny Sunday afternoon in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton.
1: And here in sweltering Fairfield, Connecticut, this is John F. Braun. Hi, John F. Braun. How you doing, man? I uh, Yeah. Sweltering. Yeah. I think it's getting into the nineties. Yep. Yeah. 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 Sweltering.
0: Yeah. That's good though. It's good. It's nice to have a break from the rain. It's kind of how it goes in New England here. You know, we have rain and then it warms up and uh, stays hot for a couple of days and then it'll rain like crazy and cool off. And then we'll have a couple of days in the seventies where it's nice and cool and dry. And then the process yeah. repeats
1: itself, you know, rinse, repeat until uh, the end of the summer. I got to say I'm disappointed though, because I'd expect more thunderstorms with the, you know, especially with the, uh, when you have the humidity and the you know big temperature differential, that's usually based on what I've seen, a recipe for some cool thunderstorms. Dude,
0: two weeks ago, didn't we have the thunderstorm knock out the geek gab for 45 minutes and we had to resume after the uh the well, power those came back cool. on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's enough for us here. You know, I uh before we get into the show and everything, we have uh we have two sponsors today, actually. And uh uh we'll tell you about the first one now. It's Gazelle at gazelle.com and gazelle is where you're going to go to sell any of your Apple products, be they, you know, a MacBook pro or an iPhone or an iPad or an iPod, any of that stuff that you have that you're not using anymore or that you want to turn into cash so you can get something new. Maybe it's time to upgrade gazelle is the place to start. They make it so easy. In fact, even if you're not ready to sell, go to gazelle.com. It costs you nothing. Uh, in fact, it gazelle never costs you anything uh you go there and you look at uh look up the prices of all the stuff you have and then you can sort of decide well this is worth x and i you know that's worth it to me to trade it in and maybe get something new or you know this isn't worth it and that's fine but uh go to gazelle.com plug in your your stuff tell it what you have they will give you a price based on the the model make and condition and then uh if you want to sell it to them They send you a box, again, costs you nothing. They send the box to you, you get the box, you put your uh, device in it, uh, send it back to them with prepaid shipping. So again, costs you nothing. Back it goes, they uh, evaluate it, make sure it matches, and then they send you money. So they send you a box with prepaid shipping labels and then they send you money. It really is that simple. And we have so many of you that have used it and so many of our listeners have, have, I mean, we just, constantly are getting testimonials from you folks about how great their service has been. I I can honestly say that we have not gotten a single note from any listener here saying that they've had a problem with Gazelle. Everything is just gushing praise. And, uh, and I, and I've used it personally myself and, uh, and I have the same feelings too. It, it, it just, they, there's, they are, they understand that every business is the customer service business. And, uh, and they really do get it right. In fact, you know, I, we told the story a couple of months ago of a listener who sent something in, said, yep, uh, I'll take the money and then wrote him back or called him and said, oh, you know, I changed my mind. Can I still get it back? And they set they shipped it back to him and uh, and he was able to keep his computer and and, you know, no harm, no foul. So check it out. Gazelle dot com. And uh, through the checkout process, they will allow you to tell you tell them where you heard about them. And uh, we sure would appreciate it if you told them at Geek yeah, because. That's where you heard about him. So gazelle.com that's uh, that's our first sponsor for the today. And we very much thank them for being that. All right, let's uh, let's go to Larry, John. This is, um, I, I I was very glad to do the research to answer this question. Uh, Larry says, I'm not sure what a flock of chargers would, would be considered. So I'll just say a gaggle of chargers seeing how I is. I seeing as how I am a card carrying Mac geek, as most of my brethren and sister in, I have acquired a few of the various eye products over the years. I am generally not of the gotta have the first day kind on most as such. I have acquired quite a few adapters. Many look exactly the same, save for a little size difference, such as the first generation dock connector versus the later generations. And it seems many times I am able to use an adapter from an old product in a new product. However, I've been encountering a lot of this accessory will not charge this device or whatever that warning screen says, as well as seeing the battery indicator on the screen saying not charging. I brought an adapter to the genius bar, which was an old uh, firewire adapter, and they showed me that it had a different number of pins than the connector uh, that I would need. Apparently, an extra pin was added. The new little tiny square AC adapter that comes with the iPhone has writing so small it's difficult to tell what the amps are. I went to the Apple store and they told me that a new iPad needs a 10 amp while the iPhone requires a 2.5 amp. The genius told me that if I use the 2.5 amp on the iPad, I could reduce the battery over time. However, it will still charge it. It just takes longer. Plus, I have purchased various USB AC adapters from other manufacturers that are not specifically made for Apple products, but they seem to work at varying degrees. I'm very confused by all of this. Uh, I do not really understand the information. Can you help? Yeah, absolutely we can help. In fact, uh Apple Apple has, has done a pretty good job. You know, John, I found uh a uh uh what, what you call those things, knowledge base articles called iPad charging the battery. But uh sweet. But it is a good place for anyone, even if you don't have an iPad, uh, because it shows you what all there's a chart sort of at the bottom of this that shows you what all of the Apple chargers look like. What they do and what they will charge. So that's the that's a good place to start. But it's good to have this conversation. So uh, in short, all iOS devices and I think most USB power adapters, perhaps all. John, you might be able to either confirm or correct. uh, Charge at five volts, and that's important to ensure you match because uh, I think. But all all you and and in that I think all USB chargers are five volts. You're safe there. Um, if you mismatch volts you wind up blowing up devices amps however are what matter in terms of ability to charge and then uh, past a certain threshold charging speed your ipad wants 2.1 amps Uh, your iphone only wants one amp Uh, but the way current works if the charger supplies more amperage than what's desired that's okay uh apple's The interesting thing is that Apple's uh, knowledge base article doesn't explicitly list amps. Instead, it lists watts and they sell adapters by wattage. They have the five, the 10 watt, the 12 watt, etc. So we need to do a little math. And John, I believe I'm correct. But again, confirm or correct, please. Uh, Watts equals amps times volts.
1: Is that right? Yes, or when I was taking electrical engineering, the other way is P equals IV, or power equals current times voltage. So you're absolutely correct, and okay. that's actually a key equation to keep in mind with a lot of calculations. So whenever you see volts, amps, watts, that's the relationship, and that's the, the Again, if you're not going to remember any other formula, remember that one, because it's really going to help you with all this power supply stuff.
0: Right. But if you know, if we need to calculate amps, then if watts equals amps times volts, which it does, that means that amps equals watts divided by volts, because that's how that's how math works. Right. Still, which is great. So what that means is the iPad 10 watt USB power adapter has 10 watts of power. It operates at five volts, as we said before. So 10 Watts divided by five volts equals two amps. Indeed, it is rated at 2.1 amps. So, you know, somewhere in there, somebody's using, you know, somebody's rounding, uh, but that works. The 12 watt adapter, it puts out 2.4 amps. Uh, and that means that both of these will charge the iPhone just fine because the iPhone, as we said before, only needs one amp. Uh, They also will work fine with all iPads. I believe the fourth gen iPad was the one that started shipping with the 12 watt power adapter. And we've all sort of taken this to mean that it will probably charge a wee bit faster with the 12 watt power adapter than it would with the 10. But, uh, but I believe they will all charge with uh, the 10 as well. But the smaller five watt adapter only charges at one amp, five Watts divided by five volts equals one amp. And while that's sufficient for an iPhone, It's only half of what the iPad wants. But Apple built the iPad to take it. Uh, But it will charge much more slowly, as as you said, Larry. Uh, And will only charge when the screen is off. If the screen is on, you'll see that not charging indicator, meaning that the power adapter is only powering the iPad, not charging it. And yes, it means it charges faster with the 12-watt adapter if you're not using it. So if you plug it into power... Don't use it if you want it to charge as fast as possible. Uh, While we're at it, the iPad mini only draws one amp of power when charging, I believe, uh, which is why it comes with the five watt adapter. So when you see those things that say this accessory won't charge this device, it's probably because the accessory is delivering less than one amp of power. Because we know the iPad will charge with one amp of power. We know the iPhone will charge, obviously, with one amp of power. That's all it wants. Um, But if it and there's a lot of USB devices that deliver, you know, 0.7, 0.8 amps, Uh, that's not enough. And the devices say, no, I'm not getting involved. We're not going to let you charge Uh, because they don't they're not getting the minimum amount of power to uh, to charge them. More amps is okay because the device is only going to draw what it needs, but less amps, not good. Make is it, it? Did we get mostly there, John? I, um,
1: I think you did. I did see a question in our chat room here, which oh. I'm not quite sure about because there's another part of the equation here. Someone asked if I use uh, one of the higher powered chargers on an iPhone, will it charge faster? There are reports that say yes. You. You know, maybe it does, but the thing is is that uh, another part of the equation is that certain devices are built to only accept a certain amount of current or power. So even if you introduce a charger that can potentially give it more, it won't necessarily take it. Though it sounds like the iPhone may. I think the iPhone is built to charge...
0: Uh, I don't think it'll, it, I don't think two amps is what it will draw, but it will draw more than one amp if, if available, but yeah, but Apple never says that anywhere, but, but there's way, there's plenty of, uh, of evidence out there to, to support that. Um, you know, that, that charge doctor thing that, um, remember we talked about it, I think not in the most recent cool stuff found show, but the one just prior it, um, it's a little device from digital innovations that you plug into a USB port on the computer and it tells the USB port, give me two amps, not just one. And, uh, and we'll charge your iPad, uh, faster that way. It also, they, they have a chart on their website that shows how fast things charge with this thing. And the iPhone definitely charges faster with the charge doctor in line. So, um, so there you go.
1: Now, the thing to keep in mind, though, is I I would say that when you take the two figures, voltage and current, the the most important thing is when you combine them and you get a power figure. Uh, Power, and you may know this, Dave, I think you have uh, uh, radio people in your family uh, and radio can lend itself to building high power devices, is that having something that's a high voltage uh, isn't necessarily dangerous. Like, for example, I think a good example is these Van de Graaff generators that I think we mm-hmm. all played with in school. Those things are generating, I think I'm looking here, like forty four hundred thousand 400,000 volts, but it's a very low current, so you're not going to die. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. So, so, so yeah. be careful. So they, in general, be careful. I, I mean, the, 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 the power levels that come out of chargers. And yeah, I looked up, uh, you asked me to look up. So USB is always five volts. Okay, thank so you. So it can be varying current levels, depending on if, uh, if sure. it's charging. And, and the article I saw said that, all right, if it's a USB charging device, then typically they'll go up to about five amps. Okay. Okay. That's good um, to know.
0: That's good to know. Cool. Time to, uh, you know, I, I had a, uh, are we good with this one, John?
1: I think we are. Yeah, okay. It's good that Apple, you know, sets the, the record straight here because it is kind of confusing because you can get a mismatch. Yeah. Uh, you could potentially uh, take a Apple charger and put it to a device and it won't work optimally because there, there's a mismatch. So is it, Yeah, right. So, uh, I had an interesting experience this week. Uh, a Mackie listener,
0: Pete was driving across new England and he, uh, emailed me and said, Hey, are you going to be around? You know, it'd be uh, love to get together. And Pete and I had met each other, uh, previous times, but, uh, he said, I said, sure. And so we, you know, picked a spot to meet. It was going to be at some point, you know, one afternoon and, uh, and I said, just let, just call me and or text me or whatever, and let me know when you're getting close, and then I'll come out and meet. We were going to meet at some coffee shop downtown, and he says, "Oh, I'm going to do better than that." And so, about an hour before he was due to arrive, I get this text from him that is from uh, a service or a website or an app, and it's all actually it's all three called glimpse.com, dot com, G L Y M P S E dot com, and what it was was it was a link to the glimpse website, but it was a sp- special link just for Pete and just for this trip. And it showed me uh, where he was on the road, how fast he was going, what his destination was, which of course was this coffee shop and what his ETA was based on his current rate of travel and and the roads in between and all of that stuff. And it was, it was awesome because it, you know, it was like I got to see his in-car GPS, giving him the ETA and uh, it was awesome. I mean, I knew I was like, okay, great. I can do work for a little while. And then five minutes before he's due to arrive, I get in the car. Cause the place is only like two minutes away. And, uh, and I met him and it was, you know, nearly perfect timing. Uh, and, uh, and it's a free app for the iPhone. You just download it and put it on there. And the cool thing is you obviously only share these links with the people you want, but you also set a time limit. So he put his link was good for whatever, two hours, let's say. And, uh, and then he can add 15 minutes to that in increments as he's traveling, if things slow down or whatever. But it, it's not like if I try to go to that link now, I, I can't track him, you know, cause I don't, I don't have, um, mm. you know, it, it, it's, I'm, I'm not authorized anymore. So it's, uh, it was pretty cool. Um, pretty cool.
1: Yeah. Okay. And I'll add to this and actually in our chat room here, hi chat room, www.macgeekad.com slash stream. Hi chat room is where you can go to both listen to this audio live and to do a, a IRC based uh, chat, which we love. So Brian Monroe actually mentioned something that I was going to second here, Dave. Yep. Is this is a feature that they also added to Waze recently. Uh-huh. Is that If other people are using Waze, you can coordinate your arrival time and see where they are. Very similar I guess I guess find my friends is a, another yeah. you know way for people to cut, to do this sort of thing but Waze added this feature it wasn't part of the uh, as far as I know it wasn't part of the original offering okay. but it is now so Very cool but Did you use, did you uh, use it on your trip up to Maine? Or? We did. We did wind up using oh. it and we used did it, it on our way well, it, uh, yeah, did it you it. any, uh, important warnings or did you, uh,
0: we did offer any, yeah. And we, we did both. We got some and we offered some, it was actually pretty cool. It it's the kind of thing I would only do with a co-pilot because there's a lot of management to do with ways, um, and constantly pressing uh, the buttons and you know, all that stuff seemed,
1: was too much. I agree with you, but I already know. So I've already, I mean, I got it down now. I mean, the two things I report are either cops or, uh, disabled vehicles Sure So I know the buttons To press here And I can do it Got Without it. looking away From the road For too long Yep Yep That makes sense That makes and sense And I yeah, won't we- do it If I'm in heavy traffic Or something like that I'll only make a report If you know There's nothing behind uh, You know I'll, I'll look around me first To make sure that uh, Yeah Right <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not doing something Extremely dangerous but yeah, uh, yeah 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 yeah. But yeah, it's also it's just nice to have someone talking to you on a trip. I think I used it one time when I was driving down to New Jersey. It was sure. like a three-hour trip. And just to have a voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> even yeah. if it's a computer oh, yeah. lady voice. <laughs> All right.
0: All right. Uh you want to tell us about Harvey, John?
1: I can. Let me get Harvey. I think up this
0: there. I think this will open into yet another uh, extended conversation, but this one about Max. So it's good stuff.
1: Uh, where is he?
0: You want me to oh, read the question? And then no, I got it in from, from there. Me now,
1: okay. What is wrong, Dave? I don't know. Everything gonna make it, here? it? You gonna make open it? Over a there? New, open a new window. There we go. Okay. Okay. Got it. All right, dear Dave and John, if you guys can figure this one out, you can share the Nobel Prize for computers. It's mine. No. <laughs> Do they have
0: <laughs> one of those? Uh, I don't think so. Not yet but we can inspire them to create one anyway hmm. yeah that's right the earning the prize is not our goal solving the problem is our goal well, that's, that's the goal. O- that's the only right. way to get the prize uh,
1: so here we go so here what, what's going on here recently verizon which which supplies my dsl service in dc had an outage in my area but the real trouble started after they called to say service had been restored their equipment might have been working again, but my iMac late 2010, 10.8.4 was still offline. A very nice gentleman from India <laughs> was unable after much troubleshooting to get me back online. He scheduled a tech to come out to my house the following day. But an hour after my call, I contacted them to cancel this service. It wasn't an ISP problem after all. I have a plain Jane Verizon modem that connects to the Airport Extreme, which is hardwired to my iMac. Or I guess, in other words, uh, Ethernet connection. Yep. to eliminate the router as a possible point of failure i had connected the modem directly to the mac after a call another call i added the router back into the loop and discovered i had internet service after all my macbook air was online with wi-fi as was my iphone i think also with wi-fi but still not my imac which wasn't getting a signal through the ethernet connection and when i tried turning the imax on the my wi-fi guess what it listed all my neighbor's networks but not my own Next up, Al- Apple Telephone Support. They were able to solve the problem or so it seemed by rebuilding my network preferences file. Apple suggested that perhaps my iMac had blacklisted my network. Uh, sounds kind of bogus. I, yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> what does that even mean? I've never heard of that before. <laughs> well, I have heard of uh, network security products that'll blacklist things if they see them acting up. But not OS Ten. Uh, I, I, I do not believe OS Ten uh, has that capability, at least not by default. Maybe no. you can program it right in. You want. Okay, everything was working normally for about five days. Once again, my iMac couldn't connect by Ethernet and couldn't see the network via Wi-Fi. This time, Apple Care suggested reinstalling the OS. That fixed the problem again. My question is, how can I figure out if this will happen again? Short of sitting around and waiting for the connection to fail, my job requires a stable and reliable internet connection, so I need to know if the problem has been solved and if it hasn't, how to keep it from recurring. Thanks for your help. <sighs> <Whoa>.
0: All right. <laughs> I don't think we'll ever get a firm answer to this, but I'm looking forward to chatting through this with you, my friend.
1: Yes, because, and I agree with you, is that we have a lot of data points here. We have a lot of things that were tried, and 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 I think some may be red herrings and that they may have fixed the problem, but may not have been the best way to fix the problem. But anyways, here's my response. Yeah, and we're having an ongoing conversation about this. So I wrote back and I said the following. It certainly sounds like I, the iMac is the source of your issues and not your ISP. Um, and then I said, and, and this is where I, I think this discussion is more going to be about the troubleshooting. So here's right. what I suggested. Um, so first I asked him some additional questions. So at one point he said he plugged the iMac directly into the modem in order to eliminate the airport router as an issue. And that's a great first step. I, I actually did that in some of my troubleshooting. Um, thing that I asked him is what was the result of this test? And I, 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 I the think moment. it's
0: safe to infer that he got in, that he had internet access
1: with, without the airport extreme installed. Uh, well, actually his reply was that it did not work. Ah, so, okay. So well, that is a little twist go. here. That is but no, twist. I agree with okay. you. It, it, yeah. Cause in, in my case, when I, when I did my debugging, when I had the problem with my, uh, you know, uh, misbehaving device on my network and I pulled the switch out and plugged in directly kind of doing a similar thing to, to rule out a part of the network. It it worked for me. But in this case, when he got back to me, it didn't,
0: it didn't. So, so that tells me that his computer had a complete network meltdown and, and Apple's solution of, well, let's delete all the preference files and, and let it rebuild
1: is actually a great one and, and worked at least for a time for him. (sighs) The, the only thing I'd say with stuff like this, so if you're going to eliminate pieces of network equipment to try to solve a problem, especially with an Internet service provider, the only thing that occurs to me, Dave, uh, I'm, I'm, I'd welcome your thoughts and then I'll try to get back on track to read. <laughs> oh, it's fine. No, this is good. This but, is good. Uh, but but no, is that if, if you're trying to diagnose an issue with an ISP, uh, typically from what I've seen, if they see the MAC address of whatever their equipment connected to change, they may not. Work properly until, uh, but I see. Let me let me crystallize what you're saying. Seeing the Mac, if if your ISP sees the MAC address of whatever the whether it be a DSL modem or a cable modem, if they see the MAC address change, they may not instantly switch gears and work with that new MAC address. It either may not work, or you may have to cycle power and stuff to kind of refresh things. But but. Go on. If I no, if no, I'm no. Ready.
0: And when, when you just to just to clarify, when you say when they see the Mac address change, that's what they're seeing. But, but when they see the device change, so when you're moving, uh, your instead of having your router plugged into your Verizon modem, if you then plug the iMac in, the router, uh, the, the, uh, the Verizon modem may still be bonded, for lack of a better term, to your router, your, your airport router, and without power cycling it. Uh, without power cycling the Verizon modem, it may not bond to a new device because you probably only have one uh, device connected at a time provisioned on your account. That's how most residential internet access is, and that's why we all run routers. and And it's, I mean, it's fine with that. So, um, so yeah, rebooting the device anytime you change what's connected to it is important. Uh, And when I say rebooting the device, I mean your cable modem or your, your DSL modem or, or whatever that, whatever it is that you got from the, uh, the internet service provider. Yeah. Yep. Definitely.
1: Okay. So to continue with, uh, with my ramblings here about what I thought he should do. I also would like to get more information on what you mean when, while the other wireless devices could access the network, your iMac wasn't getting a signal through the ethernet connection. Did you happen to make a note of the status of the interface in the network system preferences? For an interface that is working properly, you should see a little green indicator, like a little LED, And the status below should say connected. You can also view the status by running network utility, clicking on the info tab, then select an interface and view the status in the window below. In this case, where you at least getting an IP address.
0: Yeah. And it would be curious if the IP address was, um, you know, a, if the status is, I'm assuming it was not green, uh, but it might've been. uh, But if the status was yellow, That that's interesting. Red means it doesn't even think there's a connection and it's not trying to do anything with yellow. It means it sees a physical connection and it's working to sort out the (laughs) uh, the right, the IP address and and all of that stuff. So it'd be curious to see what that IP address is, if it's a one six nine dot two five X address then that means it can't talk to your DHCP server, right? But right. Uh, Brian Monroe in the chat room said, brought in another interesting point. He said, what if all of that's fine? You're getting an IP address from your router and all that, but DNS isn't working right. And so you have a connection. You just can't do any lookups, and therefore it seems like it doesn't work. But I see, I think it was more than that, because you know, the second thing he said was that he couldn't even see his wireless network listed. That's fascinating to me that that's really interesting.
1: Yeah. And I have some thoughts on that I'll share in a moment, but um, okay. Yeah. 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 So to continue with, with my, my yeah, response and then, sure. then we can maybe get in a bit of his response. Then I said, I'm afraid without additional information, I can't really help you yet. Sure. To, or, or especially did when it will happen again. <laughs> well,
0: yeah, there's a why here. Well,
1: <laughs> yeah. And we, well, we don't I kind of chuckle because, uh, Recently, I was working in a working in a customer support role, and I had someone where, where so so normally the people that I dealt with were called application engineers. They were people that dealt with customers. They they didn't really want the customers dealing directly with the software engineer okay. for obvious reasons. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but at one point, I actually got engaged with but one you're, you're person. You're a different kind of software engineer. You understand how to deal with people. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, <laughs> this was a case where basically, so I'm trying to help this guy solve a problem. And it basically it was a problem with their equipment. It was USB three uh, and it had an impact on the software that I was supporting. And they kept insisting that it was not a, you know, and the thing is, no, no, dude, dude, I know. But, but, but what was funny is at one point this guy was emailing back and forth. So number one, he would always CC his boss, which was real annoying. I was trying to deal with him, not his boss. And then his boss wrote me at one point saying, well, John, you know, I really need to know when you're going to be able to fix this problem. Ah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, so you want me to estimate how long you think it's going to take me to fix a problem that this other guy is not following my directions on how to fix it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. that's
0: yeah that's kind of the
1: answer yeah yeah it was just funny i mean it almost is like a dilbert strip i remember seeing one time where the boss is like well you know can you plan ahead for for the bugs that are going to be in the software that you're going to (laughs) write you know it's just this mind-boggling i mean how can you predict the unknown right 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 (laughs) sorry back on track so uh what i said is um in the future, and that's and a general troubleshooting tip, and actually I had not known exactly where this was, but now I do again because I revisited this, Yep. Um, is that you can invoke something called network diagnostics. So a lot of times if you are running under Mac OS X, uh, probably in Safari, and there's network problems, Safari will say, oh gosh, there's a, there's, you know, a problem with the network. I can't get to the website. You want to run network diagnostics? Here's the other way to get to it, other than a connection failing, so you can manually invoke it, is that if you go to an Assistant Preferences, Dave, and okay. then Assist Me, yep. and then hit Diagnostics, you can run the same Network Diagnostics utility. And this is a pretty sharp utility in that it'll at least isolate where the problem is. It, you huh. know, It's at a high level, but that's sometimes useful. Is it'll say, okay, as far as I'm concerned, the problem is with your ISP, with this, with that, and and it tries to identify what part of your network is acting up, whether it's your ISP or maybe it's your network. Interesting. So I suggested that as well. So it's almost a good tool. A lot of times, though, it'll come up if if it needs to.
0: Right. If, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, so, th- but this thing about, I, I mean, it, it I, I keep coming back to, you know, entire network meltdown because it wasn't seeing, not only was it not working over Ethernet, and again, like you, I'm very curious To know exactly what the system preferences was reporting for his, the status of his ethernet port, you know, when it was plugged into anything, the cable modem or the router. But, uh, but also the fact that it wouldn't show, it wouldn't even show his Wi-Fi network, Uh, but it showed his neighbors. Yeah, I'm going
1: with. Well, first off, I, and then I finally wrapped up and said, my instinct tells me that it may be an issue with either the Ethernet port on your iMac, the port on the Airport Extreme that you've plugged into, or the cable. And I don't know if you're doing this today, but I'm separating, I'm separating these two issues. I believe that the uh, Ethernet connectivity and the Wi-Fi, both on the iMac, but I think they are two separate issues.
0: Uh, I disagree. And only okay. only because he said that deleting the system preference, the, not the system preference, deleting the network preferences file um, and restarting the Mac solved both of them. So that that tells me that there's something, you know, at the core yeah. of core networking. Right. That's it's
1: not that was getting just totally
0: Perhaps. blocked up.
1: I don't know. I, but all right. Well, it, here's his reply. And then, then, then yeah. let's see where we go here. Because I don't think we've solved this. But, but I think we're, we're offering, we're helping provide the tools to, to try to solve this. But um, all right. So, so he, he replied to, to my, you know, well, well-written uh, query there. Hi, John. To answer your questions, first, the iMac could not access the Internet when connected directly to the modem. Okay. So that's kind right. of the fast forwarding. Right. So that surprised you, Dave, because you thought that it would work, but it didn't. So he said it did not work. Now it could be for the reasons that we mentioned and that you may not have power cycled everybody and the ISP wasn't that's pleased true. to see to see your, your Mac there all of a sudden instead of something else. So. But then he said, when my iMac could not get online, but my other wireless devices could access the network, network system preferences showed a green dot by the Ethernet connection designation. I'm afraid I don't remember if the status said connected, but I tried the network diagnostics help available through the system preferences. It said my computer was not connected to the Internet and offered no further information. Heard your instinct, uh, and then in regard to your instinct that the issue may be with the Ethernet port or cable, I'd reiterate that the iMac was also unable to see the network's Wi-Fi signal. That is, I turned on Wi-Fi on the iMac and it found my neighbor's signals but not my own. This see is At the whole, same time that my MacBook, uh, all right, hold on. No, no, no. That I'm whole concept.
0: Done. Yeah, yeah, we're done. I mean, we don't need to read all the all the text. I think we've got the gist
1: of it. That, Actually, all right, I think we're done here,
0: but, right? But no, so so the fact that it would see his neighbor's network. And the fact that this Apple support person said um, that it would that that it had blacklisted his local network that, you know, if we didn't if this were not the first time we've ever heard anyone even allude to the concept of blacklisting of OS 10 auto blacklisting a network that would that, that makes perfect sense. Right. Because if his network was blacklisted. All of this stuff would happen exactly as uh, described. So either OS 10 has something that in, you know, the eight years of doing the show and however many years before that we were doing whatever we do, we've never stumbled into. Uh, or he was running some third party software that was blacklisting things, which is entirely possible. We don't know. Right. You know, and I did some quick Google searching and found nothing about blacklisting networks. You know, it's just so third party stuff. Yes. But OS 10 automatically doing it. Come on. No, that's uh,
1: no could be. It almost sounds like and maybe the Apple people thought this. It could be that the whole networking subsystem on the software level is having a meltdown and all connectivity just goes away for either one. Yeah. Right. It's not hardware because you're you're talking separate pieces of hardware Mm -hmm. to do Wi-Fi and Ethernet. Last I checked. So. Yeah. So I think we solved this. So we're having an ongoing conversation here, but I thought it was it was valuable to bring up because uh, if nothing else to discuss some strategies for for how to how to diagnose these things, because that I guess the only thought that occurred to me in, in the initial conversation here is that um. Harvey was trying a lot of different things. And if you try a lot of different things, especially doing them in certain orders or not the right order and stuff like that, then you, you start creating this matrix that all of a sudden gets very complex. And (laughs) now in that you want to, uh, you want to be very disciplined in that. Okay. Plug this in cycle power on this, plug that in. What's the status. Okay. Let's do it again. Um, And it sounds like uh, I'm not, not, I'm not shaking my fist or even wagging my finger. Maybe wagging my finger a little bit here. But but I think for any of these efforts here, you want to be very structured. Maybe even do a little chart or get some graph paper or something like that. Do a little chart that shows all the things you tried. Okay, plugged in Ethernet, plugged in Wi-Fi, cycled power on this cycled power on that. What was the result?
0: That's it. No, that's a good idea. When I when I was doing a lot of consulting that I mean, I I didn't draw charts, but I would take notes so that I could. Or or keep it in my head, depending on how complex it got. But yeah, you know, you want to change one variable for each test. Correct. Or if you do change four variables per test, if let's say there's 12 things that you it might be change four on this test, change four on that test and then change four on the third test. And then at least, you know, well, it's only one of these four. So I've ruled out eight uh, already, you know, and I can now head down this path. Uh, but remember the order that you did that in, because it may be that changing something earlier then allowed for the fix to happen, you know, throughout I, many times I thought, Oh, I found it. This is it. And then two days later I'd get a call, the same problem. We tried the same fix. No, but you'd follow the path that you took the last time. It's like, yes. Okay. What's, what's the, you know, sometimes it's a multi-step fix, but, uh, but that's when, that's, what's fun about it. So, so, uh, John, I have a. Uh, oh, I have an. I have another fun thing. I we have a new sponsor. Then I'll give you a fun thing. Okay. Oh well, that's even better. Go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We have a new sponsor for the show, and uh, and it is FatPad. P H uh, A T P A D, and it's it's pretty cool. I had never heard of this before, but it FatPad is a uh, an iPad design tool. Uh, where it's more than a design tool. It's just it's a. It's um, how it's the right way to say it's 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 a note taking app plus. Right. So you can create all kinds of things in this and you can type with the keyboard. You can write with your finger or with a stylus if you have it. And then you can choose to have that handwriting recognized or not. And you can actually in place of the keyboard, if you just want to take notes, you can write and it will transcribe your, your handwriting on the fly. Right. So you've got this hand uh, handwriting recognition system that can be used in a multitude of ways inside the app. And, uh, and then of course you can just draw and not have it be handwriting and you can import pictures and you can resize pictures. So you can build these pretty complex, really complex notes really easily. And it's pretty intuitive. They have a, um, they have a little tutorial that that was built in the app uh, and it's just a document inside the app. And so it shows you how to navigate uh the uh the app as well as kind of teaches you the the steps and and then and then you sort of go through it and you're uh you're you're good to go and it uh it, it it's pretty it's pretty cool uh the the way that it works they they um you can export stuff out to PDF uh you can save it out to uh to Dropbox which I've used they they just added uh Microsoft Sky Drive SkyDrive support if you want to use that um and uh, it, you know, it's just, it, I'm, I'm glad they're response. I mean, I'm glad they're sponsored for many reasons, but I, I was glad to to see this app. There's a lot of note taking apps out there, but I hadn't seen one yet that, uh, that really worked um, in a way that it just sort of made it all intuitive. And of course it works in landscape mode or portrait mode though. Uh, it starts you up in the very first launch. It starts you in portrait mode, uh, but then you can use it any way you like. But um yeah, it's a uh, it it's a it's a pretty cool thing, and I uh, I highly recommend you you go check it out at the App Store. So we've got a link in the show notes, of course, and um, and uh, it's four ninety nine in the App Store, so very reasonably priced. Like I said, you can draw with it, um, you can sync w- via Wi Fi. So if you have two iPads that are running this app, you can actually sync with each other over, over Wi Fi. You don't even need to use a cloud service; you just do it right on your local network there. And, um, it's cool. It also, you know, John, you can draw shapes, right? But you can turn on what they call drawing recognition or shape recognition. And when you draw a circle, it makes it a circle as opposed to, you know, whatever approximation of a circle you drew. If you draw a line, it can turn it into a line with an arrow, a very straight line, same with a square and there's, there's other shapes. So if you're, if you're drawing stuff, like if you're drawing an org chart kind of thing, um that can be really handy to have those shapes you know more defined than it would be if you just had scribbled them with your your finger or or a stylus so yeah check it out it's called fat pad p-h-a-t-p-a-d and uh it is from fatware p-h-a-t-w-a-r-e.com but we'll put a link in the show notes that gets you direct to the uh to the app store and uh yeah it's a good it's a good it's an interesting tool i can see it good for you know brainstorming type stuff and and uh And that sort of thing for, you know, for those of us that just like to blast notes down, it's a, it's a, it's a handy, handy thing. And it's got, you know, it's got more features than we've got time to tell you about, which is, which is cool. Voice notes. And you can record stuff that goes along with your, your text and all of that. So check it out. Yep. Uh, Fat pad from fatware, P H A T W A R E.
1: And we appreciate them being a sponsor too. Dave. Yes, John. I got a quick tale of woe and a quick tale of, of, triumph for anyways i just want to give you a quick update here go. so as some of you recall i was having this problem with packet loss oh um, yeah 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 this and then i was running sky and i want to go through this and it's just a, a good story mm-hmm. on a number of levels uh, i at least i think so so we were having a problem where i was unable to hear dave uh and so we looked at the uh, skype call stats and you, you were having saying,
0: it wasn't that you were unable to hear me you were getting you were getting uh you were, i was cutting in and out I think it's a better way to say it. Right.
1: Right. And we uh, and we determined that this was due to packet loss or at least as far as Skype was concerned or Skype was reporting. And for those that haven't seen this, Skype does have a special window, I think, called if you go to the window menu in Skype called technical call info, which tells you all sorts of fascinating things. One of them being packet loss, which is how many packets that I intended to send to you did you actually receive and ideally, the, the number should be 0% for both. Send and receive packet loss. If there's any packet loss, well, something's wrong somewhere on your network. Now, whether it's your local network or the internet at large, that, that, you may not be able to determine that. But in this case, Dave, so step one, if you recall, in a prior show, I determined that there was a piece of equipment on my network that was blasting my switch and was causing some level of packet loss, but there was still some left over. So then that raised the question, where is it? Is it my internet provider? Is it my cable modem i don 't know, and the thing is, uh, I initially started over analyzing this, saying, "Oh my gosh, you know how am I going to prove to the your suggestion your wise uh, sage advice, Dave, was uh, well, just replace your cable modem man there's no downside to it
0: That's or, at least, the thing.
1: Case, or yeah. at least in my case, or at least in my case." You know, I'm with Optimum Online and, and as part of the internet package, they give you the modem. It's not free. It's part of the package, but they provide the modem and they maintain it or will uh, replace it if uh, if need be. So I had a really old one. And actually, I didn't really realize how old it was. It was a Webstar something, Scientific Atlanta. And I actually looked on the device and it was like manufactured in 2004. So it was nearly 10 years old, Dave. So this is an old Doxis 2 device. So, again, I was overanalyzing this. How am I going to prove to them that I deserve a replacement? And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to show up. So I looked, my local office, so I have two local offices. So the last one I went to when I got a replacement was in Narwhack. And the bad news was they gave me the same crummy doxus two modem <laughs> when it, I years, went there. Years, not this time, but years ago, right? uh, About three years ago. Yeah, okay. About three years ago, I went and I was disappointed because they gave me the same piece of, uh, yeah, piece of junk. It's, it's a, you know, relatively unsophisticated modem. So I'm like, okay, let me go to the Bridgeport office. So, you know, I got my, uh, you know, bulletproof vest and my... Uh, <laughs> Uh some, you know, Bridgeport, uh, Bridgeport is a city right next to where I live and uh, parts of it can get kind of rough. Yeah. So yeah, I found the yeah. place. So, so I looked up and I'm like, oh, I hope they don't have, you know, I hope it's not street parking. And it wasn't. So it's in a it's in a shopping plaza and they have parking and stuff. So it's like, cool, you know, fired up ways, got the right route there uh go in there go into the place you know number one i walk in there's a security guard there i'm like okay well they didn't have this in the other office but that's cool and then number two dude it was like more secure than a bank they had like two layer three inch thick glass <laughs> for the cable representatives i'm like oh gosh is it that dangerous a job <laughs> and then they actually had these little compartments where if you had equipment to replace they would actually open it on their side, like twirl it around to you. You would put it in, then close the door, and then they would rotate the thing. So there was never any any direct human contact at all. Dude, that's crazy. At mine, it's just a counter. I, I go to Comcast. Well, yeah, and the I same in Norwalk. I person. mean, Bridgeport is yeah. rough. Now, the thing is, they do collect payments here. Get to the tech Get part. to the point. Yeah. So, I, I, so I basically took my old modem and the power supply, put it in a bag, and got in line and waited. And then they called me there, and I said— And all I did was say, your tech support guy said I could swap the modem out. And they're like, yep. Yeah. Put it in the door, twirl it around. She scanned the barcode of the old one. And then it warmed my heart because she pulled out this box and on it, it said Ares. And it also said DS3, which I'm like, "Ooh, does that mean Doxis 3? In in my, my personal inside voice, I said that. And she gave it to me and gave me a receipt, which uh, it it was funny because actually, you know, they scanned the barcode on the old and new. And actually the old one, it said device unknown. It was so old. So I think they were already phasing these out. And actually the modem I have, Dave. So now I got a Aeris, whatever the heck it is, TM822. So this is a Doxis 3. It's actually a VoIP modem. So I'm not even doing the VoIP thing. So I don't think they care. I think they just want to standardize on this modem. That's smart. Yeah. You want to replace your cable modem. My feeling, I replace mine
0: every year because I pay to rent it from Comcast. So there's no reason not to, but, um, but otherwise, you know, I think at least every two years, because no cable company that I know of proactively says to their customers, Hey, you're not getting the speeds you deserve. You need to come in and get a new modem. Comcast sort of infers it. um, But, but, but only in a, in a general sense, uh, they don't reach out to customers. So most people aren't like you and me, John, and, and those of us listening that pay attention to this stuff. It, you know, most people just go with what they have until they're told otherwise. And it the tech support will. If you're having a problem, tech support will say, hey, wait a minute, you've got this old modem. You've got to swap that out. But it, it, they should yeah. be proactive about it because it solves a lot of problems like this where you've got these weird issues. And it's because their infrastructure has updated past you. So,
1: right, yeah, and they should proactively. So, so the old modem to review was a Doxis two. This is a Doxis three. So I got home, plugged it in. Uh, Opt Online does have a self provisioning mechanism where it's like up. Oh, I don't know who you are. Uh, You know, please enter your account number and your last name and your phone number. And we'll, we'll provision this modem. Well, unfortunately there was a little hiccup, but suffice to say I had to get on the phone and talk to the tech guy. And we actually had a very nice chat about, you know, upgrading modems and all that. And he was like, Oh yeah, you totally should have done that. Yeah. One one thing I speeds, I will say uh,
0: the instructions that they give you certainly at Comcast and and perhaps uh, opt online, but other cable companies too is, it, you're right. You get these new cable modems and and I think every company is doing the self-provisioning thing now. If you are connected to a router, which we all are, their advice is connect your, your computer directly via Ethernet to the modem until you have finished the self-provisioning process. And there is a good reason to do this. I did not do this the most recent time, a couple of weeks ago, when I replaced my cable modem and it, it You wind up jumping through a lot of hoops because your router needs to get in sync with the IP address of the modem and things change. And DNS addresses are assigned um, that get you into their little walled garden in order to do your uh, your your uh, it your your provisioning. And so if you're not directly connected, you may not have that uh, DNS address and nothing's going to work. So it 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 is. In the end, I regretted not having just plugged my Mac directly into the, uh, to the thing. So, well, in my
1: case, it did not work because what happened. So I called them up and I said, yeah, you know, I just got the new modem. Right. I know yours Um, was a different scenario, but, but I'm just saying in a general sense, you you
0: plug directly in. You'll even if you're a geek like us next time, I'll just plug directly in. It wasn't worth the headache.
1: Because yeah. when I finished the self-provisioning, it actually brought up a page saying, um, you're not an optimum online customer. Go away. Right. I'm like, right. Huh? So I called him up on the phone and, you know, I got right to someone, you know, pretty quickly. And he was very professional and... Uh, And he's like, oh, yeah, looks like your account shows that you're not an Internet customer. I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting. Hmm, Anything to do with the fact that I just swapped out? (laughs) So I I don't know. I I doubt that the person at the desk intentionally did this. I think it's a hiccup in their back end system in that when they saw me swap out the equipment, they for whatever stupid reason, marked me as, oh, you're no longer an internet customer. Sure. So he fixed it. And it was actually kind of cool because I'm sitting there, you know, I'm talking to him about the 192 page and he's like, oh yeah, you know, in the stream, you know, you know, he was a good tech guy. And then he's like, yeah, okay, um, I think we're, we're fixing your problem. And all of a sudden I saw the, my modem power cycle and the lights start flashing. I'm like, yep, I see the lights flashing That's and I'm awesome. like, oh, everything's great. So, uh, but when I did a speed test, Dave, so the thing was the voltage levels. So the, the 192... The, the, DBM, would, the DBMV power levels? So my power levels, measured by this modem, were the same. So... so Good. The only thing I can say is that my cable run is sufficient to support a Doxus modem. Right. I think the... And, but the thing was, when I ran the speed test on this new modem, now, number one, as some of you may know, but if you don't, Doxys supports multiple, we'll call them channels, and I think there's six... I looked at the screens. I think they're six megahertz wide or something like that. But anyways, it showed me I had eight downstream and two upstream channels uh, allocated versus I think with the old modem, it was one channel for up and one channel for down. Right. So that's, that in it's, itself that's, was limiting things. That's and that's a Docsis
0: three thing that they bond multiple channels together. That's right.
1: But the thing is, even though I had the same quality line, Dave, as at least as far as power levels with the old modem, I was getting maybe two megabits down and five up, which was like, huh? Why am I getting more up than down? Once I put in the new modem in place and cycle power and everything, I now have, I now am getting, I believe, about 17 down, which I'm only supposed to get 15. And I'm getting five up, where I'm only supposed to get two. That's great.
0: Well, yeah, and that's why the
1: cable modem uh, totally. And I think it was the migration. I I think what what really did it is that this is a DOCSIS 3 device and Mm -hmm. it's just more efficient at allocating bandwidth or or getting around problems versus the old DOCSIS 2 modem. So I'm with you in that. I think you imply that they really should. It's in their best interest to try to get everybody to upgrade. Yeah, because I think it's easier for them to manage and allocate and and make the best use of their network as well. So, oh, yeah,
0: yeah, they yeah, they will. I would be shocked if you went in with an old especially with an old modem but even with a current I mean I just replaced a Doxis 3 modem with another Doxis 3 and it solved some problems I had um I've never had them be anything other than ecstatic to replace my modem for me it you know if they give you any uh pushback I'd be very surprised because, like you said, John, it makes a huge difference in terms of their support if everybody's
1: got the new stuff. So, yeah, no, that's good. And now no more Skype
0: dropouts. uh,
1: For now. Now, you (laughs) have a little nugget, I think, Dave. So I think you said you ran into this modem before. Now, unfortunately, they took this feature away, but I thought it was valuable that you mentioned this. Yeah. Remember so the the, the, I, the password the, of the day. The, so so if I bring up the Doxus status page on this modem, which on any Doxus modem, if you go to one nine two one six eight one hundred dot one, you should get some sort of status page. That's right. And I think you've dealt with this type of modem before, Dave. So I'll let you.
0: Yeah. No. I had I had essentially the non VoIP version of that up until two weeks ago when I swapped it out. And like I said, the, the swapping out solved me some problems, but I don't think they were related to the modem itself i think it was i mean to the model of modem i think it was just my modem had to go uh but uh but yeah if you log in you can see some some everything i write over there john uh you can see sorry that's all right you can see you know power levels and that sort of thing but then there's an advanced tab on the Aeris modems uh that says enter the password of the day and comcasts Uh, with their firmware allows that password to be or that entry field to be exposed. It sounds like with you, John uh, opt online does not allow that field to be exposed, but, um, but there's a website out there. There's actually several of them, but uh, there's a website I found that will generate the password of the day uh, that will um, so that you can log in. And it really truly is a password of the day. And um, so, you know it's interesting stuff um uh, and there there wasn't much more i i think i got some log level i mean you can't make any changes in there to uh to do this but um but you know it's it's we're geeks we like to dig in and we like to see stuff
1: so but know. the initial pages, uh, but the page it shows me right now is just fascinating even the initial one it shows me these eight downstream channels I right? gather yeah, like 603 609 60 that's why i'm saying i think the 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 channel width is about 6 megahertz it also shows no. something dave which is kind of interesting yeah corrected and uncorrected oh yeah 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 in terms of the packets that you've received right because the thing is a lot of times yeah packets will get sent over a network and received and they will have well they'll be bad there, there's something wrong but whatever error detection yeah so sometimes you can recover and sometimes you can't so it's kind of neat that it's showing me that statistic as uh as well but uh yeah i'm thrilled when i saw 18 megabits down dave i'm like yeah buddy yeah yeah that's that's what i'm paying for that's actually i think well the other the the other value i think is this so at least these guys and i think they could handle it so actually at least optimum has this crazy service called optimum ultra which is 101 megabits down which i I don't need that no but but it, it works i've had it i had it
0: for like a day here from comcast and it's i mean it's amazing to see stuff over the internet it, but you got to download from people that have that speed. And there's few places that, that right, are going right. to, you know, give you that kind of speed. But, uh, so we have a right. we have an SSD conversation to, uh, to get into here. Yeah. And, uh, and I want to see if we can, if we can make this work before, before we run out of too much time. Uh, there's essentially three, three emails here that we're going to read in, in various order here. And, uh, and see if we can see if we can see, if we can get to the bottom or at least share some knowledge about, uh, how to manage your SSDs. Mark will start off with, and he writes, "I'm finally ready to replace my 2006 13-inch bl- uh, uh, black MacBook uh, with a shiny new MacBook Air i7. Uh, I don't with 512 gig SSD. I don't change my Macs that often, so I thought I'd spec out the Air in order to make it last as long as possible. I'll have finally I'll have enough RAM and processing power to install a virtual machine uh, on my laptop." My question is to do an installing a virtual machine on SSD and flash storage. I have previously used VMware Fusion and Parallels on my iMac, and although I tend to prefer VMware, either will work for my modest needs. My VM will typically be around 30 gigs in size. I'm wondering how a daily use, constantly changing 30 gig VM file will impact on the life of the SSD flash storage and what can be done to mitigate it. Does the whole file need to be rewritten each time something is changed? I have a distant memory of an option where the VM can be broken up into smaller chunks in order to put in order to let only the parts being altered need be rewritten that I don't recall whether that was uh, with fusion parallels or both would running boot camp work better uh, than having a VM file. I'm not not so concerned about optimum performance of the VM only prolonging the life of my storage space. So at. In a nutshell here, and what he's worried about is the fact that SSDs have a limited number of what's called write cycles, meaning you can only write to the drive a fixed number of times before uh, you can only write to each cell on the drive a fixed number of times before that cell will shut down to all future writes. You can read as much as you want, but writes do have a limit Um, in a nutshell. I'd say don't sweat it. Um, uh, Both Parallels and VMware uh, will write their image files in chunks meaning that only the chunk changes um, would running boot camp be better, probably in a very minor way, because that's only updating the files that you change. So if you don't do much in there, perhaps uh, you know, you wouldn't be writing a chunk as big, but really I wouldn't sweat it. Um, and and we don't have enough hard data on this because SSDs just haven't been in use in consumer applications long enough, but uh there are many opinions out there that say, we'll see our SSDs last longer than their mechanical counterparts anyway. So my, my feeling is, and this is what I do with, with my SSDs is just use the drive and enjoy. Uh, it's going to be way faster. You're going to be happier. And, uh, and I really wouldn't sweat it, uh, based on what we're seeing, these drives are built to do things, uh, in a very intelligent way. And I think it's going to last you a, a long, long time. So, uh, so enjoy that. That's basically my, uh, my thoughts on this one. A- anything on anything else on that, John, before we, before we dig a little deeper,
1: uh, I'll take a little deeper in that. I, I dig a, a quick search here, Dave, and depending on the type of uh, memory technology they're using, you could be talking anywhere from a thousand cycles a cell to five to 10, or maybe even a hundred thousand cycles. And it sounds like the technology is improving. Yep. um, in that, if you look now, you got to keep in mind. So, so you may think, oh well, ten thousand write cycles—that's that—that's that's nothing. Well, no, we're talking a single cell, right? In the SSD, and if you're talking a single cell writing to it a hundred thousand times, that may span months or probably years. So, I'm with you in that. I don't know anybody who has. I mean, the only people I know that have had problems with SSDs is where they just roll over and die. <laughs> yeah, but nobody where it's died or or it's it's uh, gotten into a read-only mode, which I think is what happens when you reach the write cycle. Yeah, uh, uh, limitation for enough cells, it says that. that sorry, nowhere writing. You can read, but that's it. Yeah,
0: yeah. And SSDs are built to handle it. They, but you know, even if you overwrite, and this will spill into the, you know sort of the next uh, bit that we're going to do here. Even if you overwrite the same file it will not necessarily write it to the same spot on the drive. So let's say you have, you know, a small file located only on one block, right? And it's block 517 of the drive. Just bear with me. Even if you say I'm going to rewrite that file, it may write that to block, you know, 7,426 and leave block 517 alone and just mark that to be erased later. Because as we've talked about in the past, writing overwriting a a cell on the SSD requires two operations. It requires a delete of the entire cell and then a rewrite uh, onto that cell. So you can't just write over something. You have to delete it and write because of that, the SSD inside itself, not even from the OS, but inside itself, will say, no, just put the data over here. I'll mark this to be cleaned up later. We're, we're busy writing this file. We don't want to slow down for the user. So, it, it You know, this it, it is going to do what they call wear leveling. And that's exactly what I just described, where it's just going to spread the wear evenly across the drive. Even if you're overwriting the same file all day long, it is going to move. Uh, and and that's how it should be. So, yeah, I wouldn't sweat it. All right. Let's, let's take us into Thomas. John, this, this is where it, this is where it gets
1: interesting. You think so? Oh, I, I know. So and <laughs> that probably means I should have a thomas up in front of me here which i will and i do or i shall go Uh, here he is open a new window there we go okay i think this is the right one is this the right one okay yes gentlemen love the show. never miss it in show 454 you talked about when one should use empty trash versus secure empty trash as it relates to the type of drive one has. I'm using a late 2012 iMac with a Fusion drive. It wasn't clear to me in the show which method of emptying the trash I should use. Any direction would be most appreciated. Okay, so first thing we want to talk about, what is a Fusion drive? So the Fusion drive is a invention from Apple that bonds a mechanical drive to an SSD and uh, allegedly does things in a smart way so that it uses the right type of drive uh, to give you the maximum speed. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think it takes the most often used files and tries to put them on the SSD portion and puts the lesser used files on the mechanical portion, which, duh, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But this question was about secure empty trash versus empty trash. Right, and
0: And with with the Fusion drive, you as the user cannot tell at all. What file is on what
1: drive? Right. So my response to him was as follows. I think our general comment was that the secure option, by definition, will not only remove the directory link to a file, but will also overwrite the old data so it cannot be retrieved. And our observation was that with an SSD having a limited number of write cycles, constant use of the secure erase versus regular erase could shorten the lifetime of the SSD portion of a fusion drive. So, unless you are constantly using the secure option, and that was something I actually dug into a little bit, <laughs> um, you actually can make all deletes secure deletes if you go to Finder Preferences, Advanced Empty Trash Securely. Well, there's that's a checkbox. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, the thing is actually, we didn't mention this. So, if you are, so so if you're in an environment where you know, but you're, you know, yeah, but, but hey, don't NSA, get, which they already know, or whatever. If you're in an environment where, where you're concerned about people retrieving old data from your drive, then maybe you want to turn on this option all the time. I, I personally don't. Right.
0: But here's the thing I think with an SSD, Go. even the secure, and this, I'll, I'll read the email that John Martellaro from, from TMO here forwarded along from a reader of his but even if you're using well let me let me read his letter because i
1: think it will it will shed some light on on this uh, he says um well to close this out though so so to wrap up what i said to him was i think you should use the secure option sparingly unless you have a a, a definite need to always securely erase things that you were throwing away so that See, was, was my advice i was trying to save you from giving incorrect advice because oh. with a fu- well with a fusion drive uh,
0: that it, i think it doesn't matter. And and let's let's read this note that uh, mm. that that John forwarded along. Uh, it was mm-hmm. a, posted to Mac uh, at where somebody said, uh, how do you securely erase a solid state uh, drive in a Mac? Is it even possible? And the answer was, you don't. It's not possible. SSDs load balance sectors on the fly just because you overwrite a file doesn't mean the associated sectors have been rewritten the overwritten data could be on entirely different sectors as we as we just described before in our description of of this wear leveling uh managed by the ssd controller which means one or more sectors could still have your original data somewhere the only practical solution is to encrypt everything and then discard the encryption key i.e file vault 2 but even then, someone with sufficient money and motivation could, in theory, crack the encryption. Um, so uh, very, very interesting because Secure Erase, all, what it does is it marks the file as deleted and then overwrites that file. But as we know with SSDs, it probably almost certainly doesn't overwrite the sector that that file was on. With a mechanical drive, it would. With an SSD, it almost certainly does not. So, secure erase is probably a complete waste of write cycles on an SSD. Really? Yeah, hmm. how could it? It can't, right? Though I mean, the way the SSD controller works, this is past way past the OS. Right? You're telling the SSD, uh, mark this file as deleted, rewrite it. And just like we described before, when you're writing a new version of a file it's going to save the new version somewhere else and mark the s that sector on the S the old sector to be deleted, but it's not going to be deleted because right. it's a waste of, of mm. cycles
1: at that point in time. It won't do it until it has to. All right. Well, we got to wrap with our SSD buddies that I think. I, yeah. Yeah. Because to me, uh, offering, I mean, it's almost, uh, I don't know if it's, you know, it's, it's certainly not Apple's intent to mislead you, but if they're saying secure a race and if you're on an SSD, it doesn't, then, then it's it, really not. They should warn you that secure erase doesn't secure
0: a race on an SSD. Have you tried it on a, on a machine with an SSD?
1: Uh, I do not currently have one. Oh, that's <laughs> it's, it's right. SSD oh, based, yeah, yeah, so yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No. So yeah, I'll so try I guess the thing was with an SSD. So, so it sounds like, there is no way, secure. There is no way to do it in that. So, so the data. So it sounds to me like the SSD is that the data is still out there. Yeah, I don't know how successful you'd be in retrieving it. Well, that's if that's they're right. doing this load balancing kind of thing. So, all right. So maybe that whatever it does in that the you know the rewriting of data to a sector on the drive may be redundant and may be wasteful. Yep. I mean, is that the conclusion That's that right. you're kind of coming to? Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it, you know, and it wasn't until I read this, I mean, it, it all makes sense. I had just never thought to put it together until Martellaro sent us this thing. It was like, oh dude, you know, and, and there was some more uh, discussion on this Macintosh thing. It's about two sentences. So I'll read it. He says, uh, besides encrypting the drive, how about writing X amount of data worth of X amount worth of random data, X being an amount of data equal to the size of the entire SS tree? SSD that much data would involve every storage cell of the drive just like encrypting the volume and that's not even that's not even correct because um you know it might wind up using a cell twice during that write of you know this this chunk of data of all, unless you write it as one big chunk but um but yeah i mean you can't securely erase an SSD Uh, I think, I think the file vault thing is the, um, is the only way, you know, encrypt your, and and I will say, you know, I'm, I'm running file vault on all the machines that I have with SSDs and there is no noticeable performance hit. So, you know, just run file vault two as whole disc encryption. um, You know, it's managed as part of the OS. So you're not relying on some third party thing to stay in sync or whatever. And it works fine. So, and then throw, and then like, you know, like they said, throw
1: away the encryption key and you're done. So that's probably the best advice. And I think the encryption key is stored, is that in the recovery partition? Is that how they do with these things? It
0: can be, or you can choose to only restore it. uh, Apple will store your encryption key if you like. (laughs) Right, right. Or you can store it on your own. And I don't store mine with Apple. I store mine locally. Although, I have since learned that Apple, when they store your encryption key, they ask for three Mm. passwords, I think. And your key is encrypted with your three passwords as the, uh, or three answers, answers to three questions, you know, the security questions and your key is actually encrypted with your answers. So um, they're not storing your key in the clear. It is, they are storing the key with yet three more keys that are still yours, but, perhaps more easily guessed than, than your, you know, whatever random key. So there is, there so. is one other question. Are we, uh, well, yeah, once we finish this up, there's one other question I want to get to, because I, I know a lot of our listeners huh. will be impacted by this this week. Sure. So, uh, so this week, but,
1: oh gosh, yeah. that's timely. You better get I, to it. That's
0: man. the thing. But is there more on this SSD thing that, uh, that we want to go through
1: before? I, I I think, I think we need more investigation. Yes. I'm, I'm currently unclear as to the, yeah, the whole right cycle thing and the whole security and, you know, dynamic load balancing, you know, am I erasing what right. I saw before thing? Right. No, I think we, I think we got to, and we have the contacts, I think. Yeah. We got some Samsung buddies. You, yeah. Yeah. Oh, do you see the, those guys there? We should get the load on this because it's yep. an important question.
0: Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. It's good stuff. It's a, I, I love questions that make us think. It's good. Um. No, it's good. I, I really do. Don't they all? <laughs> well, they should. Yeah. Uh, but some of them, you know, we read the question and we, we've already been through it. We know the answer and, and out we go. And that's OK, too. You know, we're totally fine with that. But the ones that make me go, ooh, wait a minute. Never thought about that before. That's what I like. Walter writes. Uh, he said uh, there was something mentioned in the last episode that really got my attention. and It's basically the biggest tech challenge I've yet to overcome in my workplace. Uh, he says, "I think it was Dave that mentioned that uh, Cloud Station, which is on the uh, Synology Disk Station NAS units, uh, it's their version of personal cloud." Uh, he said, uh, "Cloud Station was somehow better or different than Transporter, which is a, a, a standalone personal cloud uh, solution." He says, uh, "I'm extremely curious as to your thoughts on this, as I can't find anywhere people have been really talking about a comparison on the internet." And I'm sure there aren't that many people who have had a lot of experience with both boxes. Uh, He says, I was using cloud station as my main syncing service for work. As I mentioned before, I have a small music studio dealing with lots of audio files uh, that I need to have access to on my laptop and also to be backed up off site. I probably generate five to twenty five gigabytes of new data every day, all of which needs to be on the cloud and backed up. I was finding that Cloud Station was an incredible hog of bandwidth and CPU to the point where my computer would really start acting slowly. He says I ended up stopping using Cloud Station and signed up with SugarSync as it was cheaper and more customizable uh, compared to Dropbox. I've gotten I've already gotten to the top of my two hundred fifty gig limit with with SugarSync and I'm not willing to spend more money at this point. I'm considering getting a Transporter for two reasons. One, because I could set it up at the studio where it would be sharing a wired connection with the main machine that the new data is created in, which may, may make things more efficient. Two, because I thought it may perform better than CloudStation after my earlier woes. What do you recommend? These are the options I see, but you may see more. Obviously, the simplest solution would be go back to go back to CloudStation and see if I can deal. Maybe it really wasn't that bad, or maybe it's gotten better. Number two, I could get a transporter and have it actually be in the studio. I already have a spare uh, 2.5-inch NAS drive I could pop in there, so it would be pretty cost-effective. Number three, I could get a second NAS drive in the studio and have it as my main cloud station. It may be more of a performer than the transporter and would certainly have more features in terms of other services it could run. All right, so... Uh, it, this is a great question and you're right. There's probably not too many people out there that have extensively used both. Um, and I have, and now John, you're entering the fray with a, with a disc station as well. So you'll have, you'll have mm-hmm. some be able to get up to speed, but uh, there's no easy answer because neither cloud station nor transporter are perfect. Um, as I see it, transporter version one, which is what all of you have uh, that have transporters version one of the software Uh and it's a bit of a mess because of the way they store data in this diffuse based disk image cache and then mount it on your Mac as a separate file system. And it, it got very it's a mess because it's a, a very confusing concept for users to understand. I understand why they did it. They wanted to have one file system where your locally stored data and your transporter only stored data appeared as one. But it threw a lot of people off. Uh, The good news is that Transporter 2.0 completely changes this model to a more what I'll call Dropbox like solution where you're syncing a folder of data uh, that's on your Mac and you move files in and out of the folder. That's the same way Dropbox works. It's the same way SugarSync works. It's the same way CloudStation works. Mm. Uh, Transporter 2.0 is something I've been running in beta here for not that long, maybe about a week and it can runs you talk about this? I can. Yeah, I asked him if I could and, and they said oh, it was fine. Okay. Yep. Um it I will say that it does not run well on Mavericks, but that's okay. You know, that's it's beta with beta no can you no talk breaks. about Mavericks? Uh I talked about that part of Mavericks, yes. Um <laughs> Uh, listen, you know, I we, we use the NDA in a helpful way, you, you know. It's it's no, really, you know, this is this is okay because if people are running Mavericks, they should know this. But uh but otherwise it's been working flawlessly uh for me. And it's so much better. It's faster, it's uh simpler to use all that good stuff. Um So for the purposes and, and I'm told that a public beta or an open beta or something where you can get in on this, if you already have a transporter uh, is coming this week, that's what they, that's what they told me, uh, you know, if that doesn't happen, try not to shoot the messenger too, too much. Uh, So for the purposes of this comparison, I'm going to talk about transporter 2.0 because there's no reason to talk about 1.0 when we know that all these other good changes are, are coming real soon now. Uh, The biggest limitation I see with CloudStation on the Synology is that you can't control its WAN bandwidth, i.e. the bandwidth it uses on the Internet, uh, or at least I've found a way to do it. So it will use 100 percent of whatever you have until it's finished with its operation. Um, And and I didn't read all of Walter's question, but that was a little bit of a problem with him because he's got a slow Internet connection. Um, So that's, you know, that, that that's one thing. Cloud station, I've been using it for two years now, year and a half. Uh, Cloud station was quite, it was pretty buggy when it came out, when it was in beta, you know, a couple of years ago. Uh, but it's now gotten to the point where it's rock solid. It, I would call it a mature product. It it works really, really well for me. And I don't even think about it. Um, Transporter software is young uh, and will stay young in that this 2.0 is really a 1.0 of the new version. Right. I think that's a, a safe, fair way to say this because it's a whole new model. So we're going to have new, you know, new things coming out that, that weren't, uh, that weren't even, you know, possible with the old one. Uh, and it's a good thing. I think, like I said, the direction they're moving in is awesome. Um, so, th- and it's, it's great. Uh, but the transporter does let you set maximum incoming and outgoing bandwidth. So that may help. Um, but it depends on what your issues were, Walter with, you know, cloud station before we don't know, um, Sugar is also likely using all your available bandwidth unless you've set it to, to do otherwise. And you can, so you may have dealt with that. Um, given that you already have a disc station, Walter, uh, and that you can upgrade to the latest version of cloud station, both on your Macs and on your, uh, disc station. I would try that. There, I mean, it, it harms you. Nothing, right. Hurts you not at all to just test it and see. And then if that doesn't work, get yourself a transporter and, uh, I believe the, uh, the coupon code MGG still gets you uh, 10% off. So get yourself a transporter and, you know, in it goes and, and see how that goes. But I I think, you know, like I said, neither is perfect. Um, The transporter is way easier to set up and get to the point where you're actually doing this, you know, personal cloud thing because it just works out of the box. Whereas, The cloud station, you've got to set up your Synology unit, which John could talk about. um, And maybe, yeah, maybe we will. We've got a little time. A little Uh, bit. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, let's, let's, let's shift into that. John, you, um, you, uh, you've, you're, you you set up a a new DS7. uh, You'll tell us which disk station you set up. Yes. So,
1: uh, yeah, as a result of my uh, Manhattan uh, tour, I I did hook up with the uh, 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 Synology folks. Yep. And uh, they were like, you know, we, you know, Dave loves this thing. And, you know, we, we got to hook you up with one. I'm like, cool. So, you know, we we're looking at the choices here. And actually, I I decided to do things uh, not quite the same as Dave, which shouldn't surprise anyone, <laughs> especially Dave. But I didn't want to get the same one that Dave got. I think Dave has a five bay unit. And I'm like, you know what? Let me uh, because my needs are more modest. You know, some with two bays, I, I think I could probably work with. And so they, they provided me. I think it's the uh, 713 plus. Yep is the model that we provide me with so it's two bays um you know which can either handle uh full size or uh two and a half either three and a half or two and a half inch okay i happen to two and a two and a half inch and i gotta say this is credit to both the platforms here so i'm looking at my desk dave and i have a drobo on one side and the synology on the other and i love them both that they're they're, they're they're both good for certain purposes but i was like where am i going to get the drives you know i had some extra drives kicking around you know what? you know i'm I look at my Drobo and I really wasn't using the space. I'm like, you know what? I'm just gonna yank a couple of the two t- terabyte drives out of my Drobo and pop them in the uh, Synology. Smart, and that's what I did. <laughs> now, of course, when I removed it, the Drobo did what it does, and I, I still got to say the Drobo does this, uh, from what I've seen, uh, is is one of the best implementations. I, I pulled the drive, and it's like, whoa, drive's gone. I'm rebuilding, I'm recovering, hold on, and I'll get around to it. And it, you know, it didn't happen immediately. It maybe happened overnight, you know, eight, sure. ten hours. But eventually yeah, yeah. it was like, okay, this drive is no longer part of the club. And uh, but here's your data, <laughs> though, with less storage space. Um, I got to say the only conclusion I have, uh, uh, now, the one thing, though, is that, Dave, the software that, uh, uh, so DSM, I think, is the software that Synology offers. That DSM is the software that sits on the disk station. That's right. Yeah, disk, disk station manager. Yeah, dude. Whatever they're doing, I gotta say, I am very impressed with oh, what yeah. they can do through a browser. It's awesome. So you access this software through a browser, and for what I've been told, it's a Linux-based open. So yeah, you know, so it's a yeah, it runs uh, Linux. But but yeah, but their software. But what you get through a browser interface is much richer. Yes. Than uh, what you get on the Drobo.
0: Oh, even with not, the, it, even it's with not custom good or bad. No, it's yeah. it's well, it's a different thing. It's you know the the analogy it is it's is, a different
1: it's a different philosophy and a different a different approach.
0: Yeah, well, the F. I mean, to be fair, you know, you are using the Drobo FS, and so am I, and that was sold to us as being the the you know this framework of a NAS, a, a, you know, a network attached storage solution that had apps and all this other stuff. And that part of it failed spectacularly. Right. I mean, it, they, the, the apps haven't been updated since it came out five years ago or whatever it was. Now well, no,
1: I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. They, they, that they, they are not as rich. Dude, that don't Tony, you, you don't
0: have to be. No, I, I I, I would encourage they you to be handful, honest.
1: They, uh, they offer a handful of apps and they haven't really supported the community. OK. And they haven't updated the apps either. I,
0: it's really important yeah. that people understand if you're getting a Drobo FS for apps, you're going to be massively disappointed. Right. And I'm no, not they, they, saying they, that to poo poopoo. They all. have not
1: at this point fulfilled the promise of apps on the Drobo. And the in FS,
0: the FS never will. The, the 5N is a whole different platform, and, you know, there's some stuff going on behind the scenes with, with Drobo that I think is going to, it puts the 5N in the best hands possible. So I'm really excited about the future of that. But, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: So here's my reflection, though. So on my initial experience with these two, so I, I basically did two activities, Dave. So one was set up the Synology as a uh, fault-tolerant uh, uh, NAS. Right. Like, okay, Cool. So, you know, I yank one drive from the Drobo, it, it you know, got upset and then rebuilt. I put it in the uh, Synology and used their software. And I said, yeah, set it up for a redundant, uh, you know, fault tolerant type of thing. And eventually did it, you know, it have to optimize it and format and stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. Then I pulled the second drive from the Drobo, another two gigabyte uh, or two terabyte. And then I eventually put another one in to up the space. But I brought that over as well. So here's the, my first reflection, Dave. I would have expected the Synology to say, oh, you selected fault tolerant, blah, 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 for your first drive. I'm going to do that for your second drive. It did not. No, it okay? it, it allows and, you and, to and say So to me. All right. And I understand what I think I know what you're going to say. But to me, it's not as user friendly in that it was like, oh, well, you made this drive do this. Well, I'm going to make this drive do exactly the same thing. I'm not going to be smart enough to ask you, would you? kind of like to bond these together and it did eventually so i eventually got the software to say okay i want to bond these two drives to be fault tolerant so if anything in, Dro- in uh, drobo makes it seamless drobo does pu-
0: one you, thing no and you I mean, pop this a is, drive it yeah uh, the
1: thing is i expected when i put in the synology that it would say oh you you selected this format for the drive that i already see and you're putting in another drive would you like me to kind of bond the two together and it didn't even ask me that it's like oh okay i'm gonna make them two separate things so yeah it, it, it wasn't very user-friendly in the sense that it didn't anticipate it makes my no need for, it makes
0: no assumptions about what you want to do because right. you may want to have you may want to have one volume well, no
1: it's not fine but it but it's it it, it, it leans towards i think a more sophisticated user and then eventually i figured it out dave and that yeah. i had no data valuable data and i'm like oh i have to go to the part of the their DSM software that lets me bond the drives together. That's right. To make them one. Yeah. So, but, so to me, the yeah, Drobo it, it, is it, is a no brainer. You plug the drive in right. and it does it. It may not be what you want, but but it, uh, uh, I guess what I'd argue is for a uh, not uh, relatively non technical user, the Drobo. I mean, hey, you plug it in, it does what. That's that's they my advertise. that's
0: been my point. I agree one hundred percent. The Drobo is way easier to set up. Uh, you know, uh, for you and me included. Right. You know, you put the drives in and it does what you does, what they tell you it will do. And it it totally works with the Synology. It requires much more hands on in terms of you plug yeah. in the drive. You tell it what you want it to do with the drive and then it, it does that. But it makes no assumptions. However, this concept of the, the you know, and I'm using air quotes, the novice user, which novice user do you know That would go out and buy a five bay network attached storage device without knowing anything about what they want to do with this. And I my answer is, I know none. So I'm not convinced that that's a good. That that's a good uh, that 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 argument holds any water. You know what I mean? If you're going to buy Drobo versus Synology. you, You could be wrong. You could be wrong, but That's I. It's okay. But I, I'm. I. I. I am. I am. Will. I am happy to be proven wrong. I have yet to find that person that says me. I'm the one that wants network attached storage, but I don't want to think about how it works. Wait, what? You know, that person gets a time capsule. You sure. know, they don't get a. Or maybe a Dro-
1: again, I. I think Drobo, uh, their model is different, and and it works for certain people. and that, I still think it's a better. Device. I mean, you know, even Dave. I mean, look at these two. I mean, they're, they're both. I mean, actually, my Drobo. You know, the FS. What we, which we both have, has five bays. Yeah. Somebody must have decided, hey, I want a device that's kind of a no brainer that has five bays, and and I think the Drobo is a perfect. I don't. Device I don't think them.
0: people decided that. I think that's why they had oh, okay. so much inventory of them. They they were handing them out to us like candy. <laughs> I, I really no. I really do. Okay. I I just don't think that it it's not for. There is no market that, you know, the, the Venn diagram between novice user and person who wants a NAS doesn't intersect. Uh, you okay. know, I, 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 right. I and well, I've, up. and I've told them this, I, I love the folks at Drobo, especially, you know, the, the folks I know at Drobo and I'll leave it at that. But, um, it, it you know, I am really excited about the, the, the management there and, and the future there, but, but th- this, you know, this Venn diagram doesn't exist. But anyway, they, let's quit comparing the two. Tell me about your setup with the with the the disk station. What have you done with it?
1: Well, the other thing with the disk station. So, so the thing I did dive into, and again, I see the the discrepancy between the software on the two, and I'm going to point it out. But I wanted to set up the uh, the disk station as a, a time machine. Oh yeah, repository okay. Repository for my mini. Yep. So right now. Uh, well, up until recently, I had both of my computers, my MacBook Pro and my Mac Mini, using the Drobo as a time machine. And I would say that setting up the Drobo to uh, do a time machine partition, I think is probably the best term, is is pretty straightforward. You're like, OK, time machine partition, this size. And it, it was not impossible to do on the Synology, but it took a little extra effort to yep. set aside a partition time machine and set the size of it and set a quota and a user. So it took a little bit more effort. But that's really the extent of what I've done so far.
0: Okay. All right. Well, yeah, I'm curious to see how it, you know, because like you said that DSM software, especially the package manager, where you can install hundreds of different things. I wrote my own package. Well, I haven't even got there yet, but yeah. I was looking
1: to do things that I've done already. And again, they they did provide, I mean, I, you know, searched. I did the Google and it did provide me an article that said, okay, you want to set up for time machine. You got to set up a user. You got to set up a quota. Then you set up the time machine thing. And it it walked me through it. I mean, it had instructions that I could follow if you search for them. So it wasn't, you know, (laughs) impossible, but it took a little no, bit it's, more it, work than it did on the Drobo. T- oh, way more work. But it was yeah. Cool.
0: It, well, it's, and you have more things that you can do. I mean, the, 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 if you're comparing the possibilities of what you can do with a, you know, a, a, an FS, a Drobo FS, which again, you know, and, we're, we got to remember we're comparing a five-year-old product with a six month old right. product. Right. So very difficult to do that without acknowledging that repeatedly. But, um, but it, yeah, this is not, there's way more things you can do with, with that disc station,
1: but that comes at the oh, price dude, of, I, I haven't even scratched the surface. Right.
0: <laughs> oh, right. And, and, and neither have I. I, I mean, there's stuff I stumble into all the time. It's like, Oh, I can do that. That's cool. So yeah, no, it's, it's cool. I'm I'm curious. I'm curious how you wind up integrating with it. The only <laughs> thing about getting the two bay model that per, you got is yeah. You basically, if you want to run fault tolerant, the only way well, you can, I know, but the only way you can do that, even if you set it up with hybrid raid, which would in theory, let you use different sized discs, mm. you've only got two discs at the moment. So you can't do anything other than essentially a mirror. So you put two, two terabyte drives in and you get yeah. two terabytes of data. But you can get that extension, that, that expansion pack. And I'm really, cu- I hope you do, because I, I'm curious to hear how that works. But I think you with that, you can go up to seven drives with just the, the first expansion pack and maybe
1: even more. Well, the- I suspect, Dave, so looking on this device, it does have an eSATA port. I suspect if I take an off-the-shelf eSATA enclosure and plug a drive in, it'll Ooh. let me use that as well. Oh, that would be interesting because I think the eSATA. Well, essentially, port- their exp- well, I think essentially their expansion box is basically an eSATA. Expansion yeah, box.
0: yeah, <laughs> but it, but it, you get to address the drives individually in their expansion right,
1: right. box, right? So, yeah, yeah, I don't know, it's it, it's interesting, yeah. No, it's it's cool. The only thing I'd say to Dave is performance between the two. So I did some benchmarks. So I was using activity monitor and other things to look at the bandwidth when I was doing. So I set it up for a time machine, and yeah. now it's going to be my time machine backup for my mini, my yeah. podcast machine. I was seeing speeds, I think, almost approaching maybe 30, 40 megabytes a second okay. at times. The Drobo... Uh, at least the FS, and I think we've all recognized the Drobo FS has some issue with network yeah. performance. Yeah. So, but seeing the performance on, the, I I think the uh, the, the Synology definitely maximizes the uh, the throughput uh, with, for the with, drives that are in it. With four drives in my 1513, uh, I s- regularly
0: see writes happening uh, at full gigabit, like totally soaking the uh, the stream. It's just cool. You'll never see, I, I, I hate to say it this way, but with the 713, you'll never see that. It's the same four drives I had in my 412, and I never saw it. I got about what you're getting, that 30 to 40 kind of range. Um, when I moved to the 1513, which has exactly the same processor, same software, all that stuff, more RAM. And for some reason, more RAM, and perhaps they're doing some caching, allows those writes to happen way faster. Um, disc performance in general happens
1: faster. But uh, if nothing else, Dave, yeah. When I start up the machine, it is there in my shared. It mounts section, right away, doesn't it? Just which like the it's the FS supposed to. for whatever silly reason. The FS that, that is the their Achilles heel is that I don't know what they're doing, but they, they just don't even as a phantom device, I think we talked about this and maybe yeah. the Synology is doing this. But as soon as I open up my machine, either one, it's like oh, it's here. Yep. You're right. Right. You want to talk to it? Sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm, cu- I'm really curious to check out the Drobo five N, which is the, their current, Ooh. um, is that new? Yes. No, is that direct
1: it, connect or is that their no, their The five D is
0: the five D is direct connect. The five N is the network connect. And uh-huh. it, I am told that it, uh, fixed. They, they were aware of all the problems that the FS had and dealt with every one of them in terms of performance and all that stuff. So I'm really curious to check it out. And they put they're not having open apps on it yet cuz they sort of learned their lesson with doing that but only doing it half-heartedly. Uh so they're reaching out to specific partners and Plex was just put on there so you can have an officially supported Ooh. Plex app. Like you can with the Synology. Don't get me wrong, you can do Plex with the Synology and it works fine. Um but you know, you you don't get to pick what apps you want to install. Drobo, you know, sort of has this very, very controlled thing. At, at least at the moment with the uh, with the five N. But I'm yeah, I'm curious to check it out. I, and I I mean that sincerely. I you know, it's um, it's interesting. That's uh, that's the band. There they are. I thought yeah. they sounded quiet. Had to give them a little boost. Uh, feedback at macgeekub is the address
1: to which you can send your email for us. And just in case you experienced packet loss, though you probably didn't, though it depends on where you are in the world because we know that you may be anywhere. But uh, uh, Dave said feedback at MacGeekApp.com. That's
0: feedback at MacGeekApp.com. Uh, let's see. You can call us too if you want 206 666 Geek, which John is
1: 4335.
0: That's right. You can send us audio comments or text comments uh, from within the Mac Geekab app, which you can use to listen to the shows. You can use to uh, listen to the stream when we do that every week. Uh, you can interact in the chat room there. Check it out, the Mac Geekab app, of course, uh, in the iTunes app store. Uh, you can Skype us to Mac Geekab. That works too.
1: How else, John? How and else can, can they find us? You can tweet us. And yes, Dave and can. I are both, uh, I think, quite active members of the Twitter community. Yeah. Probably me more than Dave, but hey. But anyways, on Twitter, where do you want to go on Twitter? Twitter.com slash Gab for the publication. or I'm sorry, Gab for the podcast. Observer for the publication. I am John F. Braun. He is Dave Hamilton. And that other guy who's flying a plane somewhere is Pilot Pete. And that's how that you need to know about the Twitters, but there's also the Facebooks. Dave, where, where, where's that?
0: Facebook.com/slash/macgeekgab is uh, the place where you can find us. You can also find us on Google+. Uh, you can find us on App.net/slash/macgeekgab, and of course, when the uh, stream is live, you'll find us at macgeekgab.com/stream. We also do want to thank Michael Johnston. He is the host of the We Have Communicators podcast and the publisher of getaptlur.com. He converts the show to chapterized AAC. He adds all the images, the chapters, the links, all of that good stuff. Uh, so thank you, Michael. Cashfly.com, C A C H E F L Y.com, provides all the bandwidth to get the uh, show from us to you. In the podcast marketplace this month, BB Edit from Barebone Software, Text Expander from Smile, Gazelle as we said, Squarespace as we said, and of course Warby Parker. It's time to order your glasses if you got your free sample. MGG is the code you can use to get your uh, free shipping, free expedited shipping, all through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. Also check out FatPad. So John... Uh If there were two pieces of advice I would give this week, one of them would be get off of John's lawn and number two would be.
1: Well, number two would be don't get hot, but so number three,
0: perhaps to encompass all of those and encapsulate them into one crystallized piece of excellent (laughs) advice. (laughs) Go
1: ahead, John. It would be would be do not get caught made up